I am the past, you'll never forget me I'd probably come back and stay if you'd let me I am the past and you cannot ignore me You've got no idea what happened before me I'm your first time, I'm the worst I'm the best time you ever rehearsed I'm the ghost of ex-girlfriends But mostly I'm me, I'm the past to infinity Hello and welcome to episode 858 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindberg of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Howdy. And we have a guest today. Whether or not you've heard of him, you have certainly heard of and benefited from his work. He has written or co-written with Pete Palmer, The Hidden Game of Baseball, a foundational sabermetric book. He served as the senior creative consultant for Ken Burns' baseball, and he was named the official historian of Major League Baseball in 2011 when he also published his book on baseball's origin story, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, The Secret History of the Early Game. His name is John Thorne. He's a great writer and a great resource for other writers, and we're happy to have him on. Hey, John. My pleasure to be with you. So we wanted to have you on to tell us about a trio of documents that are collectively being described as baseball's birth certificate or baseball's Magna Carta. They came to light or their true value was recognized not long ago, and they are up for auction right now. So can you summarize for people who haven't read about this what this collection includes? Well, I think first you have to um, take a couple of steps back to prior origin theories. Now, Abner Doubleday, we keep killing the corpse every year, but I still think 80% of all American baseball fans think Doubleday invented baseball. And those who think themselves smarty pants say the Doubleday story is hooey. It's instead Alexander Cartwright. It turns out that story is hooey of the first magnitude as well. (laughs) So baseball wasn't invented. It evolved. And the question is, when did it become a game that we would recognize as the game that's being played today? And the Knickerbocker Club formed in 1845, and they had 20 rules in their uh, opening foray, only 14 of them related to the play of the game. There were many things that were either supposed and not written or still undetermined. Henry Chadwick, the only sports writer who has a plaque in the Hall of Fame, although Bill James may one day join him, liked to say that baseball started in the 1840s, but it wasn't really in created. It wasn't baseball until 1857. And what he meant by that was that the rule changes at the convention of that year brought us for the first time a game of nine men, nine innings, 90-foot base paths. Those three accomplishments are credited to Alexander Cartwright on his plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he had skedaddled for Hawaii eight years before that, Mm -hmm. before any of those things happened. Until 1857, a ball game would end when one team or the other scored 21 runs in even innings. That could be in a single inning. It could be in 16. There was no neat way to end the game, which meant that there was ample incentive to play for a draw, as we see in soccer. So the innovations of 1857 are recorded in these documents. Now, they were recorded in the newspapers in their final form or in interim form, but what's great about these documents is that they're annotated, and there are scribbles, and there are reversals of thinking. Should we have seven innings? Should we have 12? Should we have nine? So the the eternal verities of baseball, the 
the things that God would have handed down uh, had he been a baseball fan, 90 feet between bases, this was somebody's doing. And that's what these documents reveal, that there is a human side to the way history lurches forward. That's quite a soapbox piece. You'll forgive me for length. <laughs> so before this, was it uh, that instead of 90 feet, nine innings and nine men, uh, it was, you know, 65 feet, eight and seven? Or was it just completely variable and it depended on how many people showed up at the park and how big the field was? It was the Wild West. Was? And it, depend, it, it depended upon the quality of play of the two contending teams. Most baseball games prior to 1857 were not match games between distinct clubs, but rather were intramural practices, at which the number per side might be seven or eight or nine or 10 or 11. And the distance between the bases was never set out precisely, except to say that the distance between home and second base and between first and third base should be 42 paces, which, of course, makes the investigative mind say, well, what does a pace mean in 1845? <laughs> we know that the Romans thought it was 2.5 feet. It was 29 inches or 30. Is that what it meant then? Or was the pace an indeterminate measure where somebody actually had to walk the distance from home to second before any game was played. So a tall man might walk off a greater distance than a shorter man. Kids might play on a shorter field. We don't know the answer to that. But we suspect that when baseball first started, players weren't very good. So 2.5 feet would have given you 75-foot base pass approximately. And so is it kind of fair to say that the significance of this uh, as, you know, sort of comparing it to the Magna Carta is not necessarily that 99 and 9 are what we know today, but that somebody finally laid down a law, that there was a sense of codifying a specific you know, language and set of standards for the sport, and it kind of shifted it from ragtag uh, you know, get-together to yeah, actual litigated sport. Yeah, the first time you got the, the rules specifying what the ball looks like, what the bat looks like. The Knickerbockers, as I said, had 20 rules, only 14 of them playing rules. The rules of 1857 have 35. So how did these documents survive for 160 years in obscurity? It doesn't sound as if they were discovered, you know, inside a picture frame that was bought at a yard sale or, or in a deceased no, ancestor's they were, they were attic. in plain sight. Hiding yeah, in plain so sight. how did that happen? William Henry Grinnell who was one of the three Knickerbocker delegates to the 1857 convention. Doc Adams was one, Louis F. Wadsworth was the other. Grinnell and Adams worked together to prepare these documents prior to the opening of the convention, which would have been January 2nd, January 22nd, 1857. So they were readying a document that the other clubs might view and vote upon in order to get a standardized set of rules rather than having clubs make it up each time two clubs got together. And uh, Grinnell was a businessman, Adams was a doctor, and in later years, Grinnell's family moved up to Connecticut. And his, one of his granddaughters, perhaps his lone surviving granddaughter, whose name was Princess Pignatelli, because she married an Italian prince who subsequently divorced her, but she insisted on keeping the name. <laughs> and she was hard-pressed for money. So she tried to sell these documents documents to the Baseball Hall of Fame in the mid-1960s. And the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, as far as we can tell, did not act on that request. Now, the Hall of Fame's policy, of course, is they don't buy things. They only take donations. But that is something of a sham because they do a lot of three-legged 
deals whereby if they want to acquire something that's expensive, they find a wealthy individual who will purchase it on their behalf and then donate it to them and get the tax break. That policy may not have been been enforced in the 1960s. So the documents went back into the Grinnell Pignatelli drawer. When she died and the estate started to be dispersed, the three documents came up at a Sotheby's historical manuscripts auction in 1999, not at a baseball auction. They were described dimly. They were not illustrated. And some man with moxie and a fat wallet paid 12,000 bucks for them sight unseen. And when he received them, he put them in his desk drawer where they languished for 15 more years. <laughs> well, that seems like a wise investment, at least. And so you were involved in authenticating these documents and you've, you've said that they are you know, improbable survivors and that you couldn't have imagined that they existed before you found out that they did. So how yeah, did you... They, were deter- missing. Not, they weren't missing. It's just that no one imagined that a rough draft of baseball's primal rules existed anywhere. Yeah, so, so how did you determine that they were the real thing? The, um, we have testimony from Grinnell's daughter, granddaughter from the 60s, saying that it was in her grandfather's hand and, and that, that other family members who were elderly could attest to that. So two of the documents are in Grinnell's hand and one is in Adam's hand. At the time the documents went up at auction in 1999, nobody knew that it was in Ad- that one of the documents was purely in Adams' hand. In fact, there were very few people at all who knew who Adams was. I wrote my first story about him in 1992 for the late lamented Elysian Fields Quarterly. So I became the world's expert on Doc Adams, and I was really stunned at how this man had achieved celebrity in his own day, lived a long life, and faded entirely as the debate over who invented baseball became a binary one, and the only choices presented were Cartwright or Doubleday. Mm-hmm. And you called him first among the fathers of baseball when you wrote that article almost 25 years ago. So how does a founding father or, or the primary founding father get forgotten? I think uh, we, as a culture, tend to look for shorthand stories. We like the idea of a Newton with an apple dropping on his head. We like the idea of Washington tossing a silver dollar across the Rappahannock or cutting down a cherry tree. We like the idea of an Edison of baseball. So we think baseball is such a great thing. Somebody must have dreamed it up someday. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way it happened. Yeah. And he was on the pre-integration era committee Hall of Fame ballot just this past induction cycle, and he came two votes short of induction. So are these documents sort of the smoking gun that's going to get him in, do you think? Oh, I don't speculate on such things. I was pleasantly surprised to see that he was on the ballot at all after all these years. Uh And then for him to receive more votes than anybody else in a year in which no veteran got the uh, the 12 necessary, was uh, pleasing because it's a steep climb for the guys who are voting on this. They never heard of the guy, and they're, they're uh, quickly doing studies uh, in large measure on stuff I've written. And uh, if they're close to thinking that the story of baseball as conventionally told has been largely wrong and that Cartwright's plaque is a matter of hilarity, then uh, maybe the door opens a little wider for Adams. So uh, one of the rules that, or standards or whatever that was laid down in these was that the pitcher would be 45 feet away from the batter. And uh, as you uh, note, that's, that was expanded twice uh, and then uh, has been unchanged for about 125 years since. But it was expanded. It did change. And so yeah. um, I think it's you know fair to say that that was not something that 
is non-negotiable about the game. You know, the it would still be baseball if the pitcher was 61 feet or 59 feet. And so one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was uh, reading about these documents is what is permanent? What kind of was laid down um, at that moment or in that era that is fundamentally non-negotiable about baseball to the extent that everything else is negotiable in order to preserve the permanence of those non-negotiable things. Uh, when you read these, do you... S- do you take away anything about what is fundamentally uh, unchangeable that just has to be for it to be baseball? I don't think in, in those terms. I have not to this point. But um, uh, certainly the base paths could be 93 feet. The pitching distance could be 67 feet. Th- these kinds of changes, while they would seem dramatic, are perhaps less dramatic than the introduction of the designated hitter in 1973 uh, in terms of a fundamentally different way to play the game. There are some things that the Knickerbocker Rules of 1845 set out that are probably unchangeable, and that's that there is such a concept as foul territory, which did not exist in the Massachusetts game of baseball, its rival at that time. And cricket, of course, has no foul territory. So there's an artful style of batting called hitting behind or slip hitting, and uh, that has never been present in the New York game. The New York game is more of a slugger's game and a place hitter's game. So foul territory, and then there's the idea that you retire a batter by, or you retire a runner by getting the ball to the base before he reaches it, whether via a force play or a tag play. In the Massachusetts game, you could not retire a man at the base or the stake or the post, as it was called. You had to plunk him between the bases. I don't, I don't think we're going back to plunking. You know, it's it's sometimes noted the uh, the perfect pre- precision of 90 feet. Uh, people will, uh, you know, talk about how well if it was ninety-one feet. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, the game but that's so philosophy one hundred and one stuff. Yeah, if, if, and if, and if you're taking that, you know, it's nonsense. Right, exactly. And it seems, well, it seems though that what's sort of interesting about this, about seeing this founding document, is just sort of being made aware that it's not as though somebody came up with these rules uh, without having ever played the game. I mean, every rule that was laid down was informed by experience with the game and kind of knowing, well, 90 feet is roughly right. They It's not like they just blindly landed on 90 feet. They'd been playing baseball and they thought, well, okay, what makes the most sense here? Yeah, they had models from cricket. And, um, you know, in 1857, there would have been very few third basemen who could reliably throw the ball across the diamond to first. There are very few outfielders who could throw the ball 400 or 350 feet from the farthest reaches. The quality of play wasn't great. So 90 feet was something of a stretch. At this 1857 convention, the Knickerbockers and Adams in particular uh, tried to get the other teams to permit a ball to, to permit an out only on a ball caught on the fly, not on the bounce, to make it more manly like cricket. But the other clubs were newer and they figured that their younger members would protest because they would hurt their hands. So this is the primitive state of the game. You know, everything is interesting in its earliest state if the institution goes on to be great. So I like like the earliest years of rock and roll. I like the earliest years of automobiles. I like the earliest years of film. I like the earliest years of baseball. Yeah, I I like one of the quotes from a, a contemporary newspaper account that you've reproduced on your site about the 
catching on the fly or catching on a bounce issue, the, the newspaper said, and above all, let not Americans reject a manly point in the game merely because it is English and hurts the hands, which it does not <laughs> if played in a scientific manner. For surely what an Englishman can do, an American is as capable of improving upon. Well, that's lovely because the phrase the national pastime was already in use for baseball, which was distinctly a Northeastern game and probably a metropolitan New York and New Jersey game. Yeah. So to call it a national pastime was either delusional or aspirational. Yeah. And some people still make the case for a a seven inning game. And as you point out, these documents make it clear that we came very, very close to having a seven inning game. Well, there was a thought that there ought to be some congruence between the number of men on the side and the number of innings. So the Knickerbockers sent the three delegates to the convention to back uh, a game that could be played by seven men and could be played in seven innings. So when in, so when sort the, of a strange equivalence, the, right? There's no reason strange for those Absolutely. to be the same. It, it, it's like on baseball slugging. You know, <laughs> mathematically, it makes no sense, but uh, it works. Right. After this convention, after these rules were were kind of laid down, how how much controversy was there? Were there splinter? I mean, I know there were splinter leagues, but were there splinter kind of movements over the rules? Were there people who were playing in a completely different way five years later and saying they're going down with the seven inning ship? I think that because clubs had the option of preserving their prior practices for intramural play, some practices such as a different number of men to the side, where you would position them, even the Knickerbockers in 1856 played a match contest against the Empires, I believe, I may have the club wrong, in which uh, they adopted the already conventional uh, number of men to the side as nine, but the Empires decided not to have a shortstop. Instead, they had two catchers. And do you think that, uh, you know, throughout this evolutionary process and all these mutations that were going on, do you think that we ended up with the best version of baseball? I mean, was there a... Not necessarily. You know, it could be argued that we used to have hundreds of species of horses and now we've got one, right? Is that a triumph of evolution or, or, or do we miss what's lost? I have written about the Massachusetts game, which I have both played and umpired. And while the New Yorkers derided it as a sissy game and said it wasn't as manly as theirs, it's a very tough game to play. Tricky, a lot of relays were a lot of uh, teamwork in the field. And uh, it could be argued, and I have, that it was the game that got away, that the New Yorkers had a better um, PR machine behind their game. This is somewhat beyond the scope of these documents, but baseball in its you know first few decades had very rapid rules change and adjustments and different styles of play. And then it, it sort of settled into what it saw as a very traditional game. That was part of its understanding of itself, or as the fans and participants saw it as the tradition was sort of ingrained in it. Do you feel like the kind of flexibility of rules, the, the willingness to change, the willingness to... Uh, to re-envision baseball in some ways is accelerating again in the last few decades, or are the rules makers as tradition-bound as as they ever were? I think the rules the rules makers are tradition-bound because baseball is a conservative institution. It doesn't like rapid change. It's not that it's resistant to change. If people like to think of it as the unchanging game, that if you and grandpa saw, great-grandpa saw a game together in the, in the bleachers of the McKinley era. It would be very much the game you saw today. But, there, but you guys know that baseball changes in the slightest incremental ways, which have 
massive results in the numbers, in, in the way the game is recorded and in the way eventually the game is played. Look at the defensive shift revolution in, within the last five years. It's, it's amazing. Custom and practice rule in baseball as much as the official rules, and just as in the 1850s, and you commented on this, rules derive from custom and practice, not the other way around. Yeah, so the, there have been some rules changes in recent years, um, you know, probably most notably uh, bringing a replay review in. Would it have seemed uh, like a lot of changes you know, to a person in the 1950s? I mean, obviously, it would have been weird for them to think about replay itself, but the amount of changes that we've seen in the last decade or so, would it have seemed radical? Would it have seemed excessively liberal, do you think, to well, somebody in the 30s yeah, or 40s I think, or 60s? I think it would have, because a part of the appeal of baseball in, say, the 1950s was that it was a post-war period, and it reeked of normalcy, right? It was a return to normalcy that you, you came back from having fought in foreign lands, and baseball was just as you had left it. You were just plugged right back in. And integration proceeded with, um, not without incident, but retrospectively, perhaps more smoothly than might have been anticipated. So integration was a great change in baseball, which was not a matter of a rule change, but rather of custom and practice. I think that baseball in the 1950s and the 1960s saw tradition and resistance to change as essential to its enduring charm. I think current management sees responsiveness to the market trends as being more important for the game. Nobody thought in those terms in the 50s and 60s. And is there any archaic, uh, either discarded or never officially adopted rule that you are personally still carrying a torch for that you would like to <laughs> see become part of the game someday? Well, Chadwick uh, certainly wants a 10-man game. He wanted a right shortstop because originally the uh, first, the three basemen, first, second, and third, played very close to their base, and that left a tremendous gap on the right side, which the first baseman started moving off first, trying to trying to uh, contain that a little bit. But the 10-man game, though it was tried by major league clubs in exhibitions, never was used in a single uh, major league game. It was, however, the rule in the Cuban major leagues as they began in 1878. And I guess lastly, this is some decades later, but I am curious, and I've seen so many conflicting explanations. Where did the six inches, the extra six inches on top of the 60 feet between home plate and the pitcher's mound come from? Yeah, the bubblegum uh, card uh, explanation is that it's a surveyor's error that it was supposed to be right. 60 feet, zero inches. But uh, it's that people don't understand that the pitching distance, when it changed from 50 feet, which it was from 1880 to 18, through 1892 to 60 feet, six inches, did not increase by 10 feet 6 inches because with that change also came a new way of measuring the pitching distance. It was now to be measured from the back foot, i.e. the slab, where previously it had been measured from the front foot of a pitcher's box. And the pitcher's box was 5.5 feet long. So when you moved that box back by 5 feet, you got the back line to the point which is 60 feet 6 inches. Does the 60 feet 6 inches include the mount? The, I don't know exactly how to put this, but is it from the area of earth directly below the pitcher if you were to draw a flat line, you know, straight out? Because it goes up, you know? It's like it's, it's a triangle, kind of. 
Yeah, there are all kinds of wiggles. And you can also say that, you know, it, it's not really measured to the front of home plate. It's not measured to the back of home plate. It's measured to the middle of it. So it's not really 60 feet, 6 inches at all. But this is for the rabbinical division of baseball, I think. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, if you want to own these foundational documents, you have until April 23rd to place a bid and bring them to your own desk drawer or donate them to John. I'm sure he'd be happy to have <laughs> yes, them. Yes, Bro brother, can you spare a million dimes? <laughs> right. Uh, the, the bidding actually increased by $20,000 as we were speaking. Someone, someone upped the max bid, but it is still at what seems like a steal, currently $161,051, which seems I like a... I think that figure is to be disregarded. I think all the action will take place in the last 24 hours. Yes, I'm sure five. that would be quite a bargain, but you have 15 days as we speak to place your bid. I will link to that website if you'd like to check it out. So move your investments out of Panama. <laughs> right. That's good advice regardless. All right. Well, John, thank you. This was enlightening as always. People can find John on Twitter at Thorn underscore John, and you can find his writing at his site, Our Game, which is at ourgame.mlblogs.com. John, thank you. My pleasure. Good talking to you guys. All right. That is it for today and for this week. Thank you for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's Patreon contributor shoutouts go to Drew Broadfoot, Joel Berger, Andrew Phillips, Adam Yarkovsky, and Dan Roberts. Thank you. Our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, comes out on May 3rd. It's the story of how Sam and I became the Doc Adamses of the Sonoma Stompers Baseball Operations Department. We took over an independent league team last summer, and we tried to run it according to our own ideas of how baseball should be played. You can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild, rate and review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. You can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. We welcome your questions and feedback, and we hope that you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday. The past is a grotesque animal And in its eyes you see How completely wrong you can be that uh, doesn't become the sure cure for insomnia for your audience. <laughs> no, not at all. I know you have described yourself as the, the most boring man in the world, right? But I don't think anyone else agrees. I, I take pride in it, yes. <laughs>